You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for the songs and the music, the scripture reading this morning. And uh, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 16. We'll start at verse 1. Let's look to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we come and and Lord, so often in our own hearts and minds, we are cumbered about with many worries. Our minds race this morning. There are things that preoccupy us today. And Father, I pray now that in, in this moment, as we've tried to prepare our hearts to listen to your word, that your spirit would calm us and quiet us, that we'd be sensitive to you speaking through your word. Lord, I, I know you're here today, and I thank you that we serve the living God. And Father, our prayer is that because of what we experience this morning and what we hear from your word, that first and foremost you would be glorified and exalted and that we would lift you high and give you the praise and worship that you deserve. And then, Father, we pray that because of what we experience this morning, that we will be changed by your Spirit. Oh God, we need you. We thank you that you walked among us. We thank you that you lived a sinless, perfect life. We thank you that you came for a purpose, and the purpose was for our redemption. Lord, help us never to forget the price that was paid for our soul. We thank you this morning. And so, Father, we pray now that you'd honor your word. I pray that you'd empower by your spirit. I pray that Jesus would be exalted. In his name we ask. Amen. First Samuel chapter 16, starting at verse number 1. We now are coming to the close of Samuel's ministry with Saul. Uh, after this point, you will see Saul in a different light. We will focus more on David as we approach the story of David the king. Verse number one says, And the Lord said unto Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? And we've had the opportunity now to see the heart of Samuel the prophet, the man of God, who mourns, uh, for Saul, he, at this point and stage, he is mourning for Saul, the king. And, and we have seen Samuel's heart on this. Early on, when, when the nation turned from God to have a king for themselves, it grieved Samuel. He wanted the nation to serve God and God alone. And, and the people said, oh, Samuel, please pray for us. And Samuel said, I, I won't cease to pray for you. That would be sinful. I love you. I, I desire for you to do right. My heart is just greed for you. And then later on we see when Saul the king blows it. He disobeys God. The kingdom is taken from him. That Samuel the prophet is weeping all night long for the king. He is broken. He is devastated by what's happened. He weeps all night. And here in our text we find Samuel the prophet again mourning for Saul. There is something very proper and appropriate with his mourning. And it reveals his heart, his love for the nation. He wants them to follow God. And his love for Saul. Who we will see from this point on just waste his life. He wastes potential. And so Samuel grieve for him. There's something proper in grief. What we grieve about reveals our heart. I was thinking about this text this week and just trying to examine my own heart and life about what grieves me. 
What is it in my life that, that I, I grieve over, I weep over, it troubles me? Or is there anything in my life or our lives? Let me ask you a question this morning. What do you grieve over? What troubles you? What do you weep about? Is it something of substance? Or is it shallow? I don't know why it's doing that. But it's doing it, so we'll live with it. I was examining my own heart and life this week, and I came to the conclusion that in my own heart and life, um, I, I can be grieved over shallow things. And I want to be honest with you this morning. I know you're going to be disappointed in this, but I was looking at my own spiritual life and thinking, okay, Rick, what is it you grieve over? So I'm going to tell you a story to reveal how, how unspiritual I am. Uh, I, I've had this notion as of late to go musky fishing. I talk about it quite often, actually. It's almost like an obsession now. I know some folks, you think, fishing, how boring. You sit on a dock and hold a pole and just sort of fall asleep. And that's fine. If you have that attitude and that's your mindset, I get it. It's okay. But when you hook into a fish that is over 40 inches long, you do not sit there holding your pole, whistling Dixie. Okay, it's a different experience. So I've been sort of obsessed with, with catching this, this muskie, right? And this area is one of the best areas around to fish for muskie. And so I've been going out, trying to get there early, getting up at 5, 4.30, getting to the spot, the point where I want to be, and fishing for muskie. And for weeks, nothing. I know it's sad. It, you can, it, it is sad. Nothing. And so on one particular morning, I was out, and, and my father-in-law, Greg, who's actually in the service this morning, didn't plan on him being here, uh, but he is, and uh, he came, and I was holding the point, the best spot, and I said, listen, I'll get there first. When you get there, we'll fish that point, and hopefully I'll catch something. And so I was there about a half an hour early. I was fishing. Another guy came up with two of his... Uh, nephews, and we're fishing, we're chatting, and Greg pulls in, he comes next to me, we both cast out from the point there, both of us, both in the same spot, and in seconds, he has a fish on his line. It's a muskie. And, and you know, we're supposed to rejoice with them that rejoice, and so I was like, oh, that's great, wonderful. And, and he was so kind that after he caught his fish, he moved down the line to about the fourth or fifth one down. And so we're talking, about a half an hour goes by, and then another fish is on. It's on Greg's line. And by this time, I have to be honest with you, I, I guess I, I'm glad he's catching something, but I'm, I'm just not thrilled about it. And so I'm talking to the guy next to me. turned out he was saved about a year ago. His life was changed by Christ, which was really a great testimony. And we're talking. About an hour in, it was cold, very cold. And the eyelets of the pole were getting frozen. And so I said, listen, take my spot to this, this guy next to me, I'm going to switch my lure out and you can fish the, the best spot while I move. So I move. I go to my car and after two casts, this guy catches a muskie. And I'm, I'm hey, it's great. I'm happy for you. Lying, 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 lying. And that, by this time I'm frustrated and everyone there is feeling sorry for me. Like you are, right? Oh, poor guy. And so they're saying, now cast over here and go really slow and try to get it. This is it. This is it. And I'm thinking, I'm, I'm about done. And so Greg comes over and says, no, just cast over here. So while I'm at this point, if you've ever been there, there's a point there and there's this light tower and he goes on the other side and while he's telling me how to catch one, he just casts in and guess what? He catches one. And, and listen, this is how my heart, this is how wicked I am. I'm just being honest with you. This may disappoint many of you. 
Um, I didn't hate him. <laughs> but, but I started thinking to myself, oh, wait a minute, what? God, why? Right? And, and here's how my mind works. And, and again, I'm not, I'm not bragging about this. I'm not saying, look at this great example. I'm telling you, this is bad. I thought, God, and I'm saying this in my mind, you like fishermen. You, you, you hung with them. You, and you are the God of the universe. And, and certainly, as the God of the universe, couldn't you just put one, just one fish in front of my lure? I mean, you could do it. And then, and then I'm thinking to myself, is there sin in my life? Is, there, is, it, is it me? Is it, and then I think, God, this guy next to me, or down, down the road, he's a pagan. He doesn't even love you. I love you. I serve you. I try to please you. Oh, God, why is it? Why me? Right? And I've got to tell you, I, I'm, I'm, I'm ashamed slightly, but I was grieved over it. I wasn't crying, but it grieved me. It grieved me. I wonder in our own lives, if you're honest this morning, what grieves you? And I have a hunch this morning, for some of us, it's as shallow as mine. You know, you folks who are sports people, you, you've got your team. You've got your maple leaves. Don't you get grieved? You should. I'm, I'm a Browns fan. So I, I understand this. Like the, the, the factory or the arena, it's a, it's, or the, the factory of the stadium, it, it's, a, it's a factory of sadness. I mean, they just produce disdain and hurt and trials and crying. It's like, why can't you ever win? And we grieve by that. I mean, it ruins our day. It ruins our week that, that our team isn't doing well. Or they get us so close and leave us hanging. And it grieves us. Or maybe it, for you, it's, man, I, I missed that deal on Black Friday, and I, I could have had that, and I was willing to trample someone to get it, which is always amazing to me on the day after we're thankful for what we have. People are trampling each other to get something. And I missed that deal, and why? It grieves me. Or maybe you weren't recognized for what you did, and no one patted you on the back, and it grieved you. I have a hunch this morning I'm not alone. I think if we're honest and assess ourselves, we are grieved at times over things that are nonsense. When's the last time we as believers grieved like Samuel? Over a Christian brother or sister who was struggling. Who was wasting their life. And we knew that God had so much more for them. And it literally, it broke our hearts. It, it grieved us. When's the last time we were grieved over the thought of a loved one who is without Christ? Who if they died today would split hell wide open? And as we thought of them and thought of their future and thought of the hope that Christ offers and them rejecting it, it grieved us. When's the last time we were grieved over a child that was wayward, whether it was our own or someone else's, and we felt their pain and we empathized with them and, and it grieved us. We wept over their situation. 
what grieves us? When's the last time that we as believers were grieved over our struggle with sin? And when we say like Paul, oh wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? Time and time again, God, I failed you and it grieves me. It's a reflection of our hearts. And for many of us, we grieve over nothing. Nothing. And others, we grieve over things that are foolishness. Jesus, as He looked out and saw the multitudes, the Bible says that He was moved with compassion. He saw eternity. He saw a living soul. He saw the hurts and the desires and the needs of humanity. There's something very proper about Samuel's grieving. But now watch what happens here in chapter 16, verse number 1. The Lord comes to him. And he says, How long will thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, that I will... I have provided me a king among his sons. God says, listen, okay, it's okay to grieve, but now it's time to stop. Samuel, do not become so overwhelmed at the failure of Saul that you miss what I am doing. You miss my hand. You miss my purpose. It goes beyond this disaster. God says, okay, it's all right that you grieve, but listen, don't get overwhelmed by this. Take the horn. Take the oil. Turn from your grief to God's future. Look to me now. My kingdom marches on. I am not foiled by what's happening. Yes, Saul has blown it. Yes, Saul is wasting his life. But listen to me. I am sovereign. I am Lord. I am in control. My people will not falter. My plan will not fail. Take the horn. Take the oil. Anoint another king. I am still in control. What a great thought that is this morning. No matter what grief we find ourselves in, our God is still on the throne. Verse number 2. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hear it, he will kill me. And this is how it works, right? If there's a standing king and you go to anoint another one, it usually doesn't sit well with the king who's on the throne, right? And, and Samuel knows if I do this, Saul will not be happy. He will kill me. And God says, Just take an offering, take a heifer with thee, and say, I come to sacrifice to the Lord. And call Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show thee what thou shalt do, and thou shalt anoint him unto me, whom I name unto thee. And Samuel did that which the Lord spake, and came to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming, and said, Comest thou peaceably? And, and, and this is interesting. The people of the town knew that there was a rift between Saul and Samuel. They didn't want to be called the conflict of this, and so they're trembling and say, Listen, I'm, we're a little nervous. Why are you here? And Samuel reassures them and says, Listen, I'm, I'm coming to make a sacrifice. I want to meet with Jesse and his family. It's all okay. And so he does this. Verse number 6. And it came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before me. So get the picture now. Samuel sent to Jesse's house. Jesse has a bunch of boys. And God says, Go to the house. My king, the next king, I have seen a man after my own heart, I will anoint, I'll tell you who he is. So he's sitting there, and the guys come in, and the first son, the firstborn, the oldest, 
Eliab comes in. And when Samuel sees him, he says, that's the guy. This surely is the one that the Lord is going to anoint. Now let's see a question. Why would he say that? Why would he look at Eliab and say, this is the guy, this is the king. Surely this is the one that God has for the nation. Any ideas? He looked like Saul. Ian, you're exactly right. Remember when we were introduced to Saul? Big, tall, head and shoulders, Ian over people. I mean, he was a big guy. He looked like Saul. He looked the part. He looked like the next king. Just like Saul did. And this is interesting to note. Here is Samuel. He is a man after God's heart. He's a prophet. He loves the Lord. And yet he thinks, as he sees Eliab, that this has got to be God's way. Listen to me. Samuel needed the Lord's discernment. And too many times in our own lives, we think, oh, I've done this. I've, I've been here before. I got this. I've got experience. I've got charisma. I know what to do next. Listen to me. We need the Lord's discernment. And, and Samuel was deceived here. He wasn't the right guy. A matter of fact, had he picked him, it would have been Saul Act 2 wasn't the case. He says, this is the guy. This looks exactly like our last king, Saul. And we all know how that worked out for Israel. Verse number 7. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on on his countenance, nor on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. The Lord says, he's not the guy. Oh, he looks good. Yes, he's handsome. Yes, he's big. Yes, he's strong. But I'm telling you something, that's not the one. And this next phrase that we find here in verse number 7 is perhaps one of the most important scriptures regarding God's divine concerns and human capacities. Look what he says. I have rejected him because I have refused him, for the Lord seeth not as man seeth, For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. You know, you read that verse and you say, well, Eliab looks good, he's handsome, he's strong, he's big, and what's God's deal? Does he just not like good-looking people? I mean, is God more concerned about using the ugly ones and the homely ones? You're saying, yeah, right, that's the way it works. That's not the case. The truth is the external neither qualifies or disqualifies. It simply doesn't matter. And God says, listen, here's how, I, here's how I do it. I don't look on the outward. I look upon the heart. This morning, understand something. This God of heaven, His gaze goes much deeper than the external. His gaze penetrates to the heart of the individual. He pulls back all the layers, all the facade, all the nonsense, all the good looks on the outside and directs his gaze to the heart. He's concerned with the heart. And this morning, we must beware of the impressiveness of the external appearance. Matthew chapter 23, verse 25. Jesus warns us of this. We have that. He says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of excess and greed and nonsense. The next verse says this, verse 26, Thou blind Pharisee, 
Cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Be careful. The outward appearance can be pretty impressive. And God says, wait a minute. I'm not looking for that. Because the inside of the cup, the inside of the platter, it is filthy, it is dirty, it is vile. Be careful. We, we look around and we see, well, here's the church lady. And she's got it going on, man. She's prim and proper. Her hair is just right, never out of place. She's got her long dress on. She has her big family Bible. And this is the epitome of what we want to be. And God says, whoa, wait a minute. Nothing wrong with the outside being okay. But I'm more concerned about the heart. I'm, I'm looking at the heart of this woman. And when I look in and when I peel back, you know what I see? I see bitterness. I see self-righteousness. I see gossip and greed and lust. I see it for the way it really is. I peel back. My gaze goes much deeper. We look at the guy who comes in and he's got a suit and tie and his hair is just plastered just right and a cheesy plastic smile on his face and we think, this is the guy. This is a pillar in the church. And again, nothing wrong with a suit and a tie and your hair plastered to the side if that's how you like it. But God says, wait a minute. I'm looking to the heart. And come to find out, the pillar of the church is a jerk at home. The pillar of the church is unkind and mean and cruel. The pillar of the church is involved in pornography. The pillar in the church has lots of problems that no one ever sees. The cup looks really clean on the outside, but inward, it's a problem. You be careful. God says, my divine concern is the heart. How's your heart this morning? I don't care what you're wearing. I don't care what you look like. What's your heart? What's going on in here? Isn't it amazing? Somehow we feel better about coming to church and trying to fool people? As if we got it all together, we don't have any problems, we're perfect? It's ridiculous. That's not reality. That's not the Christian life. The Christian life says, I'm a sinner, and I'm a sinner saved by grace, and God already knows everything about me, so I can be transparent. I can be honest. Yes, I blow it. Yes, I fail. Yes, I've got a struggle here, but by God's grace and through His Spirit, I can have victory. Be careful about that in the lives of other people. Be careful about it in your own life. Hey, who cares? Who cares if everybody in this church thinks you're great and spiritual and religious and your wife hates you and your kids can't stand you because you're a hypocrite and you have all these rules and there's nothing of the fruit of the Spirit going on in your life? Who, what have you won? You have won nothing. Nothing. And God says, I am concerned about the heart. And then it tells us something of human capacity. Look at verse number 8, 1 Samuel 16. Eliab doesn't work out. So they bring the next son. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither hath the Lord chosen this one. And then he gets the next son and he passes before. Verse 9, and, and, and the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. Verse number 10, 
again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. And by this time, Samuel is perspiring, thinking, Wait a minute, you called me here. You told me there's a king. All the kids passed by. What's going on? So in verse 11 he says, Hey, Jesse, is there a chance you got one more kid around here somewhere? Like in the sofa, in the closet? I mean, did you lose one? Is there anyone left? In verse 11, Jesse says, yeah, there's the youngest one. But he, he's so small. He, he's so insignificant. I, I mean, we, we probably, we shouldn't even consider him. I mean, you saw Eliab, you saw the other ones, they're good. I mean, this is, he's a kid. You're looking for a king. This is not the man. And Samuel says, listen, we are not sitting down until that kid comes in. And so they get that kid, verse number 12. And they brought him in. Now he was ruddy. It's an interesting word, right? It either means that his complexion was like bronze, like he had a really good tan happening, right, because he's out in the fields all the time. Or it means he had red hair. He was a ginger, right? He had this tint of red hair, right? And I think that's what it was. This kid, because teenager comes in. He's out in the fields. He's insignificant. He is nothing. He's a shepherd. And we talk about Christmas, oh, the shepherds. The shepherds were outcast. They, they were stuck out in the fields by themselves. They, were, they weren't of any consequence. And so David comes in and he's got this red curly mop on his head. And the Bible says he had a beautiful countenance and goodly to look on. He was good looking. But still when God was looking at this little shepherd, teenage boy, and, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Listen to me. Our God takes great pleasure in using those who everyone else says are unusable. He does it all the time. Yahweh is pleased to use the disenfranchised members of our society. His concern is the heart, and he uses human capacity. He uses those who we say, no way, man. They will never do anything. You couldn't use him. You couldn't use her. Did you see that guy? Did you hear him talk? Can you hear him sing? Look at that guy. He's nothing to look at. Certainly God wouldn't use this one. And God says, yep, I will use that one. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul reminds us of this when he says, For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And the truth is, he does call wise. He does call noble. But in comparison, that's not what he does. Next verse, 27. It says, But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. He's chosen the weak to confound the things which are mighty. He goes on, and he says in verse number 28, And the base things of the world, and things which are despised, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Listen, here's how God describes the people he uses. Weak. Base. Nothing. This is how our God functions. This is who He looks to. And, and then Paul goes on here in verse 28, that no flesh should glory in His presence. God takes people that everyone else says, there's no way. Why? So that when something happens, it's obvious it was all by God. All by God. Next verse. Next one. But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus 
who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And he closes off with this statement, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And this is our God. This is a divine concern. He looks to the heart. In human capacity, he's looking for someone who is just willing. He uses them. Verse number 13 now of 1 Samuel chapter 16. Then Samuel took the horn of the oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. And this now is the beginning of David and his story in the Word of God. I want you to notice in this verse that the, the, the Spirit of God comes upon him. This is an act of God's grace. And I think we understand this morning, in the New Testament, there's a different dispensation for the Spirit. In the Old Testament, he came upon people to empower them and to enable them. They had a special mission. But in the New Testament, Jesus says, I'm leaving you, but I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to leave you my Spirit. And my Spirit will take a residency within you, and He will abide in you, and, and He will never leave you nor forsake you. He'll be with you. And that will be my seal of, of redemption, and He will be with you until you, you meet me in glory. It's the Spirit of God. It's God's grace. And if you're saved this morning, if you're a child of God, you understand that the truth is, if you do not have the Spirit of God, the Bible says you don't belong to Him. Be careful. Too many folks praying prayers, going down front, reading a card, and they think they're saved. Some people are saved like that. But if you did that, and there was never any fruit in your life, like love, joy, peace, a desire for the God's Word, for His people to know Him, then you're not saved. God's Spirit must live within you. And it's God's grace. But not only that, it's God's gifting. God has given us His Spirit to equip us. To do everything that He's called us to do, we have the Spirit. And now, now here's the point for this morning. The Spirit comes upon David, and it's with David his whole life. And we would have this idea, that's great. Now the Spirit of God is, is upon him, and his life from this point forward should just be sweet. It should be wonderful. He shouldn't have any trouble. He should be able to go musky fishing, and every time he casts his line, there should be a fish on it. Because he's saved. He has the Spirit of God. But I want you to notice something now. And, and, and you should do this. You should read 1 Samuel chapter 16 all the way to the end, uh, chapter 31. And here's what you'll find. Before this time, David, he confronted lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and all that stuff. But what he's about to face after his anointing pales in comparison because he is going to struggle from chapter 16 to the end of the book. And there's something very insightful for us here. So often as believers, we have this idea that because we're God's children, we deserve the good life. We deserve, and, and, and again, oh, catch a fish, have it for but we deserve those things. And our mentality is wrong. Listen to me. David would have never thought that. Because the Spirit comes upon him, and from that day forward till the end of the book, he has trouble. And in our culture, in our society, in our Christianity, we think the opposite. We think when the Spirit comes upon us, everything is supposed to be good. I'm not bashing anyone this morning. Well, I kind of am. I always do that every week. But... But there's a song that came out a while back. It's a catchy song. It's got a great tune to it. Um, many of you probably know it. Some of you don't. Um, 
David may have liked the tune, but he would have been confused by the words. Let me read them to you. Wherever we go, talking about Christians who are born of the Spirit, wherever we go, bluebirds sing, and the flowers bloom and the grass gets green. It's a curious thing, but it's just our thing. Wherever we go, the bees behave. In the treetops, squirrels smile and wave. It's a curious thing, and it's humbling. Wherever we go, little glowworms glow. I don't know what that means. Little roadrunners run ahead, going to tell their friends, little mice and men, get them all excited, all invited. Um, and then it goes on for the chorus, which is great. But then he says this, Wherever we go, the dumb get wise. Boy, I wish that was the case, don't you? It's not. Sometimes it seems like the dumb get dumber. The crime rate drops and the markets rise. It's a curious thing, um, but it's just our thing. Bullies make nice, crooks repent, and the ozone layer shows improvement. Now, it's a cute little ditty, I guess, but David would have never sung that song. He probably would have mocked the song. Because after the Spirit of God came upon him, he was equipped for conflict. He leaves this anointing, and then he's confronted with the jealousy and anger of Saul. And now for a good portion of his life, he is running, he is hiding, he's an animal on the run. One step between him and death. No sooner does the Spirit touch David, and he is, he is catapulted into endless trouble. That's David. Do you know something? It was the same for our Lord. Look at Mark chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. You'll see it up here in just a moment. Mark 1. You, you know the story. It was Jesus' baptism. And straightway coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. What a glorious sight that would have been to see Jesus and being commissioned for his ministry. He goes under the water. He comes up. And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Could you imagine? The Spirit now comes upon him. And God says, I'm well pleased. Verse 12. And immediately the Spirit drives him into the wilderness. Verse 13. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days being tempted of Satan and was with the wild beast and the angels ministered unto him. This is the Lord. And when the Spirit comes upon him, the Bible says immediately he's driven to the wilderness why? This desert place to be tempted. To face Satan. Forty days of this. You say, okay, pastor, I get it. That's David. Um, that's the Lord. I mean, they're in their class by themselves. Acts chapter 14, verse number 19. And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. They stoned him. Howbeit, as disciples stood round about him, he rose up, surprised, and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch. Verse number 22. Confirming the souls of disciples, these are believers, it would be you and I in the first century, and exhorting them to continue in the faith, don't quit, don't stop, don't get discouraged, and that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. I've got to tell you something. 
When God's Spirit comes upon the believer and, and dwells with them, He never promised us a rose garden. And Paul says, Beloved, listen to me. You've got the Spirit. You've been born again. Eternity is your home. But I want you to know something. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be difficult. You will have struggles. It will seem like there is no end to the pressures in your life. There will be times when when your personal struggles are there and you think, is there any relief in this? And I want to remind you this morning that conflict for the believer is not always a sign of sin. More often than not, it's a sign of sonship, of daughtership, that we truly are God's people. And the Spirit changes us dramatically. He fits us for eternity, but He also equips us for conflict. The wilderness is not a sign of the Spirit's absence. It wasn't for David. It wasn't for the Lord. And it's not for you. It's a sign of His presence, that He will sustain you. I want you this morning to be encouraged. It may sound strange, but here's the encouraging part, number one. The reality of your Christian life is you will have conflict. That's a reality. If you are saved, if you're born again, you will have trouble. You're not the only one. It's not unusual. It is the way of the believer. But the other reality is this, that the Spirit of God is there. He's not left you. He's not forgotten about you. He knows where you're at. I want you to see now as we close the service this morning, David runs for his life from chapter 16 to verse 31. The Spirit has come upon him and he's had trouble. But now look what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 9. And, and he's speaking there to a bunch of people. But at the end of the verse he says this, As the Lord liveth, and aren't you thankful this morning our God is alive? He's alive today. We, we preach and proclaim the truth because Jesus is alive. And he says, As the Lord liveth, as Yahweh liveth, who hath redeemed my soul out of all adversity. David gets through this time of testing and says, Listen, I want to tell you something. It was hard. It was difficult. There was one step between me and death. But listen, now on the other side, I have a story to tell. God's alive, and in this process, He delivered me out of all my adversity. He had a story to tell. God was good. Did you notice back in Mark chapter 10 when it said Jesus was tempted and Satan was there? It says something very interesting at the end of that verse. Mark chapter 1, verse number 10. Go to 13. And after all of this, the angels ministered to Him. After this time of struggle, after this time of endurance, God sent messengers to encourage and uplift even the Son of God. And for many of you this this morning, listen to me. God has sent divine help. He is encouraging. He's going to bring you through this time. He's sending His angels to minister. Don't be weary. Don't be discouraged. And then look to this. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7. This is for all of us. I want to encourage you to be faithful. The Spirit will equip you for conflict, but it will end someday. Revelation 21, verse number 1. And I saw a new heaven 
and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away and there was no more sea. And the sea has the idea of calamity and trouble and, and heartache. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and He will dwell with them. And they shall be His people, and God Himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. This is Christ speaking. He says, What I'm telling you and what you're seeing, John, it is true, it is faithful, it will happen. And he said unto me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of the waters of life freely. And then he says this, He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God. He shall be my son. That, my friend, is a good deal. And that's what we are living for. And the Spirit being upon you, sometimes you're going to be in the wilderness. Sometimes you're going to have struggles, but he is faithful. Robert Moffat, Scottish missionary, said this. He said, we shall have all eternity in which to celebrate our victories, but we only have one swift hour before the sunset in which to win them. And brother and sister, this morning I want to encourage you. You've got one swift hour. And you may find yourself in a whole heap of trouble right now. It is not God saying, I'm not with you. It is saying, I will never leave you or forsake. I will bring you through. You will have a story to tell. The angels will minister. And someday I will wipe away all tears. And for eternity we will celebrate the glories and the victory. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.